You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, and today is Friday the 22nd of October, am I right? I think you might be, and thank you for joining us, Larry and Larissa, wherever you are. Special Friday here in Melbourne. It is a special Friday um, because uh, mm-hmm. because we're, we're leaving lockdown. We are the most lockdown city in the world, and uh, we need to just celebrate the fact that we're um, feeling a little free and easy. It's like a slow dismount, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. not, it's not like we're, we're slamming into it. Oh, maybe some people are, I don't know. No, but the vibe on the street was definitely just this nice emergence. Everybody's come out of their, their hibernation, you know, mm. and uh, they're slowly emerging out into the street, slowly but surely. And unlike the uh, Australian federal government, Kevin, oh. <laughs> well, we do. We do want to invite everyone to the party, unlike the uh, Australian federal government. Yes, that's how life should be. <laughs> Today, we're going to be hearing from... Daniel Levy, who is with the Canberra branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And Kevin and I spoke to him a little while ago. And as you hear us talking, I maybe uh, invite you to keep a couple of things in mind as you hear Daniel speaking with us. And a couple of those things come out of what we understand of how the economy works through modern monetary theory. Hmm. And so the first thing is that... Believe it or not, the Australian federal government effectively chooses the unemployment rate. They're effectively choosing to have people be unemployed. So it's not like an act of God. <laughs> yeah, as they, they, they refer to it as a natural unemployment rate, but it's anything but natural. They mm. create conditions to have a, a pool of unemployed to put downward pressure on wages. They, they construct that. They mm, can, by design. Yeah. <laughs> so keep that in your head as we're, as we're talking with Daniel. And the reason we say they can choose the unemployment rate is that the way they make that choice is about how much spending the government does. So if we think back to only just last year and how long it took them to roll out a payment for all those people who couldn't go to work during the pandemic, and they called the payment the job keeper, it only took them a few weeks, I think, to come up with that. Yeah. Can we just remind uh, the listeners of the process? They have a discussion in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, they pass a bill. It's called an appropriations bill. The appropriations bill uh, is then sent to Treasury, and Treasury sends out the money. It's that simple. <laughs> it's pretty basic. So the money is created when the government spends. So this leads to my second point, if you'd like to keep this in mind as we're listening to Daniel is that the Australian federal government can never run out of Australian dollars. In fact, it creates the dollars when it spends by that process that Kevin just mentioned. Indeed. So we can never run out of money to pay for unemployment benefits, and there's no reason why we couldn't increase those benefits at any time, as we did last year with the COVID supplement. And, of course, now we've taken the COVID supplement away again. The uh, the, the fear, well, the... The unrealistic fear, the false fear that the Conservatives run is that if the government just creates currency, well, well, runs up a deficit, they're going to cause massive inflation. Their theory is Mm -hmm. if you just create currency without responsibility, then uh, 
you have inflation and your economy dives. Right. Well, they just did that, right? <laughs> and the economy didn't. They're hoping that there's going to be inflation to prove themselves mm. right, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. Mm. Didn't happen and is unlikely to happen and would be very unlikely to happen if we did, in fact, double the unemployment rate. Yeah, as opposed to what would have happened had they not spent into the economy. And if, if they had stuck by their own ideology, which is to let the private sector run the economy, it would have been a disaster. The government had to intervene and spend like a socialist sort of <laughs> government needs to. And, they, and they've done it more than anybody in Australian history. They've run up a nice fat deficit, but we need more of that spending because, of course, the government deficit is the private sector surplus, as we also know, which means that the money goes from their spending into our pockets. So the other little thing that follows from that idea that the government can never run out of money, and in fact it creates the money when it spends, just to remember also while we're listening to Daniel, is that it is not taxpayer money that pays for unemployment benefits So if you're out there, you're on unemployment benefits or maybe on a disability payment or even on the retirement pension, any social security payment, it is not taxpayer money that is paying for that. And the reason we can say that is because taxpayer money pays for nothing. (laughs) It's something to get your head around, but I'm going to take you through the process again. They have a discussion in Parliament. They pass a motion. It's voted by the government. Mm -hmm. It's called an appropriations bill. They send that to Treasury, who then instructs the RBA to send out the checks. There's no tax collected in that process. No tax, nope. They do that afterwards for their own reasons, but they don't need it to send money out the door. So if you're receiving government money uh, in any way, shape or form, and you're feeling guilty about um, the the imposition you're placing on uh, on taxpayers... Well, somebody comes along and tries to tell you that's my taxpayer money you're using... (laughs) Tell them to piss off, they're wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. Tell them from Anne and Kev. <laughs> yes, and step them through the process. Step them through the process. Shall we have a little listen to, um, to what Daniel had to say? Let's do it. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Daniel Levy to the show, who is with the Canberra branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Hi, Anne. Lovely to be here uh, with you and really stoked to be on 3CR because I'm from Melbourne originally. Uh, and now live in Canberra. Oh, you never forget your roots. <laughs> what got you involved in unemployment issues to start with? Personally, I had a really good start to life. I was given by my hardworking parents a large number of opportunities to advance my education, um, my career, all of those good things. Um, unfortunately, I had a very severe undiagnosed mental health condition, and the last 10 or 15 years of my life have been spent in constant freefall. Um, what you might call downward social mobility. Mm. So going from what it's like to have a lot to being completely dependent and reliant on support systems. And what became apparent to me is that, you know, you'll hear from me because I had that luck. Uh, My parents um, have been very supportive. The people who are simply struggling to get by and still underwater, they are either too busy, too stressed to be even thinking about advocacy, or they've already gone under. Mm. And we see that in the form of things like addiction, highly um, disproportionate representation in the carceral system. You don't really hear from them too much. And what really motivated me to get involved was I have now seen both sides of this track. And it's just a gross and completely avoidable injustice of the system we live in. We need to be supporting everyone 
to live comfortably above the poverty line. And that's a big part of, of how I came to this. That's something that we see uh, uh, quite a lot is the system is set up to work well for people when it's working well, and it's not set up when the wheels fall off. It's a bit like the, the Mikey transport system. <laughs> uh, if you've got a card and you're in the system, it's great. If you don't have a card and you try and catch a, a train or public transport, there's no support mechanism. That's like a microcosm of how we operate as a society. And uh, when people do fall off the system, they end up with all sorts of uh, social and mental health issues, which then is used against them as victim blaming. They say, oh, look at these people, they're pathetic. But they weren't pathetic. The conservatives in our um, society turn that around and victim blame people who've fallen on hard times. And I remember seeing a lot of that in the union. It was people, they had a little bit of leeway that gave them that ability to do some activism. So it's a really interesting perspective that you have on your own situation. It's a very common thread. What it means is that overall, the movement as a whole suffers for not having as many voices with the truly brutal lived experience as those doing it toughest. Um, we, we really have to do a lot more to reach out to them and boost their voices. And that's really hard given how little resourcing there is. What have you heard on the ground for how people are going during the lockdowns? The sad fact of, um, of, of 2021 is that everyone has pretended that the original conditions that led to the COVID supplement and the implementation of JobKeeper are no more, when, if anything, uh, they are worse because of the compounding effect of when they were brutally ripped away in, in March of this year. When the COVID supplement was brought in in 2020, it was actually found by academic research that poverty amongst people on welfare payments decreased from 68% to 7%. Wow. That is unfathomable decrease in absolute poverty. And when, when we say poverty, what we mean is the Henderson poverty line, which takes into account real fixed costs like rent, like food, like medication. Mm. In 2020, in response to the sudden need to lock down the whole country, I would say the most important anti-poverty um, policy decision was made. It was to double job seeker. It was to double all of the payments on which people without jobs relied on. That doubling lifted the payment, not much, but clearly above the Henderson poverty line. So all these people were living at half the poverty line. We're not even talking some kind of luxury level of payment here. And are back to it now. Yes. In a, in a first world country like Australia, we've got a policy that deliberately puts people at half the poverty line. It's one of the lowest in the OECD, and the OECD itself criticises us for that. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So that was um, Daniel Levy? Daniel Levy in Canberra with the AUWU, the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, with some shocking stats there. Let's have a look at some of these figures here. Uh, I think the average income, and it's the average is hardly what you call indicative, the, the average is somebody, well, $64,000 a year is, is the average income. So that's what people, sh if they're doing a reasonable job, they should expect sixty four k a year mm -hmm. to live on, right? Um, so then we've got the minimum wage, uh, which is, uh, I think, is just under 40000 a year or around it's like 40... when you're starting out in life, isn't it? Yeah, so if someone's going to employ you and they're employing you at the minimum wage, mm -hmm. then you're on full time, you're going to earn about forty k a year. The poverty line, which is the... 
the amount of money you need to survive. S- survival rate, isn't it? Just yeah. just barely survive is about thirty k a year. Mm-hmm. And where's new, the unemployment benefit? New start, all of that. Which they really call it new start or job job seeker now? It's still job seeker. <laughs> job seeker. Well, yeah, is about seventeen k. Seventeen k. Yeah. So it's it's approximately half the poverty line again, right? This is how it was before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. They had a brief reprise, which uh, Daniel was telling us reduced people on the poverty line from sixty to seventy yeah. percent to seven percent or something. Yeah. And and now we think it's a good idea to shove them back down at half the poverty line again. How do you figure that? It's, it's, <gasps> once the supports start falling away, mm. it, you're just set up to fail because it's harder to find work when you are struggling to find somewhere to sleep, when you're couch surfing, when you don't mm-hmm. have enough uh, money for proper food. You've you become got... locked into the unemployment poverty cycle, that's for sure. Yeah. Let's, let's, um, let's listen to Daniel a bit more. When they raised the, the new start level uh, and called it Job Seeker. Um... Well, it's funny. They, they, they literally renamed it from New Start to Job Seeker so that they could restart the stats and say, oh, no, people have only been on Job Seeker for this long, conveniently forgetting that it's the same thing. I have another theory about this as well, is that um, they realised that a lot of people were going to be forced into unemployment, people that they um, hadn't factored into their, their Nairu figures. Uh, and so they doubled the rate of New Start to Job Seeker to disguise the fact of how incredibly paltry it is for all these people who would normally have a job uh, finding themselves on unemployment benefits. So they wouldn't be able to say, oh, you know, it's terrible. They'd say, oh, no, being unemployed is okay. I was on 550 a week or whatever it was, and uh, it was all fine. And then as soon as those people who are normally in a job are back in a job, they cut it in half and, and victim blame again. We have record increase from pre-COVID levels of unemployment. Not everyone was able to get their job back. What you mentioned there, um, Kevin, about the radical changes to people's lives is exactly what we found with our branch members, with people who got in contact with the national side of the union, was people just reporting the, the sheer relief of being able to eat well and not have to choose between eating and medication, of being able to see medical specialists for the first time. And, you know, I think back to the raise the rate campaign that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union was doing pre-COVID. And I think back then they were asking for an increase of $80 a week, (laughs) which just seems so humble now when you compare it to what really needed to happen was for the rate to double. Is the Australian Unemployed Workers Union seeing the support through various organisations throughout society for that call that you're now making to keep the level of the COVID supplement, which is doubling the old new start rate. I think the absence of people in the NGO complex with lived experience of, of poverty and the deference of those organisations to funders, which largely come from Labor and Liberal governments that get into power and allocate funding to these orgs, has seen a fairly large amount of state capture. That's not to do with you know, some nefarious plot. It is the nature of the beast. Uh, you know, in order to keep their organization going, have to tow a certain line. Um, that's kind of why um, AWU is allowed to do what it does is because it is completely funded by members, by solidarity members, by allies who donate with no strings attached. And it allows us to move the needle in ways that other orgs won't. So Raise the Rate specifically was a coalition of organizations that had to formulate a shared goal. 
And that shared goal before COVID was what they thought they could get from a Labour government that got into power. And Labour itself has a lot to answer for here, along with the coalition, because they take a large amount of money in donations from businesses who want to keep, um, as Kevin said before, the Nairu, the, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment where it is, because that keeps cost of labour very low. It seems so strange that both parties are so deaf to the obvious need to raise the rate. So now we're getting to the reason. There are so many um, lovely people in Labour who despair at the situation and want it to change and get better. But they are not the ones who are benefiting from this corporate capture. Uh, They are the ones who have to explain to their friends why Labour can't be better on, on these policies. I think that for similar reasons, like not that the Greens are perfect or anything, but the reason why they've been able to move and accept 80 a day from the community when the community said, let's do that, and then even go further and say at least 80 a day, we've actually got to tie it to the Henderson Poverty Line. I think they were able to do that because their members were calling for it and they have a lot less of a mechanism to at least at least in the corporate sense be captured. So we've calculated what it would take to get an average person in Canberra above the poverty line who's on a social security payment. And then we lobbied the ACT government to make 200 a week disaster payments. And the Greens, for example, were the only ones listening. A Greens MLA even sponsored the petition. But at the same time, they still faced those elements of state capture where they said, oh, but you know, there's budgeting measures and I'm not sure how we do it. And so if the will existed, they for sure wouldn't. We know that because the ACT Greens Labor government delivered hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Chief Minister Barr has bragged about it. They've delivered hundreds of millions of dollars in direct financial payments to businesses. And that was not something they had the infrastructure for. They had to set that up independently. They didn't really have a lot of cooperation or help from the ATO or federal counterparts. They did receive 50-50 funding. But in terms of the administration, they did that all themselves. And that's because the political will was there. And it kind of shows the fault lines along which capture will operate. How does it suit business to have the rate of unemployment so low? Um, That's the other funny thing. Or funny, it's sad and tragic. It doesn't suit most business. Mm. The businesses that it suits are the big businesses that are hoovering up the most resources and trying to keep cost of labor as low as possible. For most small businesses, they would love to see welfare recipients get a massive increase in job seeker, in DSP, in aged pension, in all of the welfare payments that are below the poverty line. They would love it because the money would flow to them more than anyone else. I was thinking that when you were describing the increased quality of life, people could finally buy food. Well, surely the people supplying the food would want to see an increase. (laughs) For most business, that is the case. It is only not the case for the mega corporations. The median wage has been kept artificially low by low welfare. When you have a starvation poverty payment for your welfare, you don't really have an easy choice when you get offered a criminally low wage for your work. If you raise welfare above the poverty line, suddenly people can make choices about the work that they do. Suddenly it's not, I have to do work that I hate to survive. It's, I can choose what work I want to do. That is the crucial thing that these mega corporations are desperate to avoid. It is the underpinning of why you see the same faces donating to both Labour and Liberal. It's to keep business conditions the same. That is why Shorten, for the life of him, 
would not commit to a raise or a number before the 2019 election. If we are elected, a Labor government will initiate an urgent review into the inadequacy of New Start payments. But we are the great safety netters of Australian politics. We understand that every Australian has the right to good help and to a good job. I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be a little bit kind on on the federal leaders here. You have a landscape, a political landscape that is controlled by increasingly conservative right wing forces. Murdoch not being the least. Uh, I think, as um, Whitlam said back in the uh, back in the day, it's only the impotent that can afford to be pure. Unless you politically compromise yourself, you're, you're always going to be on the sidelines. And I've and I've seen that a lot in the Labor Party. Yep, people say, oh, you know, you've got to get into the system before you can change it, but that's never actually what happens. You get into the system, and then the system captures you. Mm-hmm. That is the the reasoning, at least on the Labor side, really, that they have fashioned for being so weak on all issues. It's if we do the right thing, the Murdoch press will attack us and we'll lose elections. Guess what? You've been running that strategy for two decades and the Murdoch press does that anyway and you lose the elections anyway. And what's actually happening is you are just burning out all of your activist base that would go and fight elections for you to get into government, change hearts and minds, convince people, yes, there'll be a better future. Yeah, what do you um see as the AEW strategy then behind making calls, which obviously no one in the coalition is going to take seriously? It's to raise consciousness and it's to make the arguments and the voices of the people who are suffering from the brutality of the system unignorable. If you are just sitting there inventing excuses and you are in a position of power, people will know that it is untenable for you to pretend that the problem does not exist. Mm-hmm. What's what's pretty apparent throughout all of history is that it is not electoral parties that create change. It has to be demanded from the people. Mm. What does organising look like during the restrictions? It's mostly online then. So what we did with the petition was uh, realise, okay, there's an e-petition system for the ACT Legislative Assembly, so let's get a petition, get some orgs on board to promote the petition, and the great thing was we had, you know, the ACT Greens do a big mail out to their list. We had Get Up do promotion. We had other other aligned ACT unions get their members on board. And so we got to the 500 signature requirement for referral to a committee of the ACT Legislative Assembly. We got that inside of a week and it was to make sure we got there in time to be considered by the ACT budget. Wow. Now, we're not um, so... Uh, I'm optimistic that uh, Andrew Barr, the chief minister, is a huge neoliberal, so we're not um, optimistic that he'll do anything about it, but it has started to create the impetus. There's an inquiry being held for the ACT Legislative Assembly that's going to take submissions on the ACT government's pandemic response, so we will be forming the rest of the campaign around a submission. If you're a part of a left-aligned organisation and you'd like to help, I would recommend that you email canberra at awu.org.au. If you're in Canberra and want to get involved in that specifically, uh, please uh, email canberra at awu.org.au. And maybe let people know how they could get involved. So we recommend everyone get involved at their local branch level. So the best way would be to head to awu.org.au, sign up for the mailing list, make sure that you um, input at least your suburb and postcode correctly. That'll immediately put you on your local branch's mailing list. 
you'll get sent a, a welcome email and, and all that. Um, I got involved that way. Our currently outgoing branch coordinator, David, has just done an enormous amount of work to build the branch. He was going from two or three people attending each branch meeting, went out to about 10 to 15 on most occasions. And that, that's, that's just Canberra. Um, get on the mailing list, get in touch with our various campaigns that you might see on social media, uh, and you will get plenty of opportunities to get involved with what we're doing. You know, Daniel, what you've been saying really tells me that you can organise at a state level around a federal issue, which is unemployment. Yes. The core business of AWU really is the advocacy. People who get in touch with us and say, these are the problems that I'm facing. This is the job service provider who is currently making my life a nightmare. And we have a whole team of people um, led by Raquel, who is uh, one of the best comrades you'll ever meet. And we work with people to say, all right, how can we within the current system make your life a bit easier? And from doing that, we have activated a large number of people to say, okay, I'm no longer experiencing that acute stress. I'm in a better place now. I want to do more things. And so one of the, one of the core businesses of AWU is to use that energy to educate the rest of society about how everyone deserves to live with dignity. It's it's the whole it's the whole business just finding finding the communication so that people will act on those ideas um, and to do that is difficult. I think there's also a lot of internalized shame to get over. Mm. Like what we find is that a lot of people have really taken to heart the message that they deserve to be struggling and that poverty was actually a series of bad choices that they made and not a top-down policy choice from government. The whole victim-blaming thing, yeah. just the insidious nature of that, how it's seeped into the culture, how it's so changed you know, over the last 20, 30 years, where if somebody was down on their luck back in the 50s and the 60s, you'd be in there to help them out, whereas now you, you blame them for their position and you say, right, well, you probably deserve it. I, I've seen it in branch members who have that awakening where they say, oh, no, I do deserve better. Thank you for letting me know that I deserve better. Yeah. Oh, I had that awakening. I, I was like, oh, geez, I've made some stupid choices. And then... But you shouldn't... <laughs> like, stupid choices are a fact of life. You shouldn't suffer for them. Mm. And then a lot of the choices are not actually so stupid either, you know? Like, it's just... You were living. You made choices. Why should you be punished? If you make a mistake, if something bad happens to you, a functioning society will help you out, but we don't do that. We attack each other, uh, and we've been trained to, trained to attack each other. The inadequacy of payments. The inadequacy of payments. Canberra has uh, really seemed like a, a very active part of the AEW now. I just wondered, does being closer to the halls of power help in any respect? It has. We we did um, a National Week of Action protest on the lawn of Parliament. That was in March of 2021. It was lovely to get a whole bunch of support from allied orgs. Rachel Seawitt spoke and was very passionate and has always been probably our best ally. And just to remind people that Rachel was a West Australian senator with the Greens. Yes. Rachel has retired from Parliament. She's still going to be very actively involved in all of the uh, movements and causes that she was involved in. Oh, that's good news. <laughs> Rachel Seward is perhaps the model of the person who says, the system will not capture me. I'm not going to let you get away with your uh, manufactured reasons for the things you're, you're doing. I'm going to call it exactly right. That National Week of Action protest that was also attended by the local ACT branches of places like CPSU, CFMEU, 
ACTCOS uh, sent um, representatives, Young Workers Center, um, who's been one of our best allies in organizing events and giving us strategic and logistical support. Um, there is a very um, high base rate of people who are engaged and accept that the structures that we thought worked don't. And this was uh, when they were going to repeal the COVID supplement fully, um, desperately trying to get at least Labor on board to block that bill and keep the supplements in place. Unfortunately, we were not successful because it's really hard to um, override that level of capture. So even the ACTU came out and demanded 600 a week for JobSeeker. That is more than any other Labor-aligned org has ever has wow. ever demanded. Uh, we were stoked about that. Uh, we would love to see them advocate for it more. They sort of did a press release and we haven't heard too much from them um, recently. But, you know, you can clearly see that there are people in the movement to whom this is deeply distressing. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au The other thing that Daniel was pointing out too was the research, the finding that people in poverty, it's not that they are unwilling to comply with the COVID guidelines, they're actually unable to. So we'll hear Daniel talk more about that as well. Another one of your demands is that you are asking for a suspension of mutual obligations. And I was wondering if you could explain what those are and why you would want them suspended. Yeah, so mutual obligations are essentially a contract that you must sign with the government and your job service provider to do a certain number of activities in every period. It's, you know, 15 or 20 job applications a month. It's attending certain trainings. And then after six to 12 months, you must, or if you are directed to, which you almost certainly will be, you, you must do work for the dole, which is um, an incredibly dehumanizing, unprotected form of indentured labor works out that you are paid 40 cents an hour. It's appalling, yeah. The modern slavery register gets submissions from the job service providers um, every so often, and one group had submitted their risk assessment and said, this is unlikely to um, be defined as slavery in, in this aspect because we conduct risk assessments. Well, actually, Ernst & Young did a survey of the safety of work for the doll sites and found 68% of them don't meet the basic standards for risk assessment. So what happened in Queensland, Josh Park Fing in Queensland died on a work for the doll site. 
that was found by a court to have been wholly deficient in its risk assessment and safety um, procedures. That is what is facing all of our members without factoring COVID. It's unsafe in general, but then you factor in what's happened with the vaccine rollout. The people who are living vulnerably, who might have transport costs, who might um, be just trying to keep their head above water, we're finding disproportionately haven't been able to access vaccines. And this is why the suspensions were good, is it has allowed people to not have to expose themselves to riskful um, situations where they have to physically go to a mutual obligations place like a job service provider. When those protections evaporate, people who are majorly at risk of COVID exposure will be forced by the government to go and, and dial up that exposure. And tragically, people with disability who were supposed to be prioritized because of the incompetent vaccine rollout, uh, which we found here in Canberra as well, even the ACT, which is supposed to be so progressive with Rachel Stephen Smith constantly getting up at press conferences to you know, talk about how great they are. There were several people in our branch with disability who could not access uh, 1A or 1B. One of them had an appointment booked. Uh, this is a person with severe ongoing chronic conditions that make them immunocompromised. They missed it because they had an episode where they were very unwell and couldn't attend that appointment. No attempt was made to follow up with this person. When they called the line back when they were feeling better, no attempt was made to get them a new priority appointment. They were put straight back to the back of the queue. I saw a really um, startling figure in one of the Unemployed Workers Union press releases where it said those living in the poorest areas of Australia are two to four times more likely to die of COVID than those who live in wealthier areas. That is... Um, it's disgusting um, that, that that has been allowed to transpire. That was from the work of our um, excellent peer advocates at the Accountable Income Management Network. We've seen in Australia that the um, the largest outbreaks have occurred in the working areas where people don't have the privilege to avoid contact. They have to go to work because otherwise they can't afford to survive. They can't work from home. Uh, they're on the lower incomes. Uh, this pandemic, you can buy your way out of the worst effects uh, if you've got the money. That's the deeply insidious part of we're going to have to learn to live with COVID. Well-off people will not have to learn to live with COVID. They will continue to work from home. They, they can control um, to their level of comfort what risk profile they see from COVID. And, you know, it's, it's almost um, tragic when you see the, the well-off um, people holding parties to, you know, flout the rules because it's like you could simply, you very simply could choose not to do this. For people on low incomes who, who cannot afford to refuse a casual work shift, who cannot afford to use private transport, they've got to bunch themselves into public transport, they do not have choices. They do not have good choices. They have a series of bad choices that range between meet an urgent essential need or expose myself to a longer term risk that is incalculable and potentially deadly. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio. These frontline essential workers that we've been raving about so much are still getting paid sweet bugger all. We have to remind people that the pandemic and the associated economic crisis mm -hmm. is a magnificent time to rethink and reset uh, the way we operate as an economy and as a society. Mm. Uh, and a lot of these same things were said during the GFC. When the, when the wheels fell off, you go, right, oh, the system's buggered and we need to buddy turn it into a better system. Mm. We didn't do it then. 
And well, I don't really think anyone's serious about rejigging or resetting the economy unless they're talking about the job guarantee because that is a mechanism for doing that. Uh, we can talk about the job guarantee more in other shows, but that is one way of ensuring that everybody who is willing to work can have a job. Um, well, will we have a bit, bit more of a listen to Daniel? The AUWU or the Unemployed Workers' Union is wanting to see uh, safe working conditions enforced in all workplaces. And so that's really heartening to see that the unemployed workers and the frontline workers, especially, I guess, precarious workers, are joining forces in this. So the Unemployed Workers Union isn't just purely for unemployed people. It is underemployed as well. And underemployed doesn't even necessarily mean that you don't have um, some full-time hours in certain situations. Underemployed is all the precariously employed people. It's all the people who are part-time, who want more hours or who can't get more hours or who are casual workers. And what you increasingly see is that the so-called frontline essential workers. Our essential workers. <laughs> and somehow disposable also. Exactly. How can you be an essential hero and then expendable if those words aren't enormously hollow? Because the first description is absolutely true. All the workers who contributed to allowing us to get through the pandemic, it's really sad that that work has been undone, especially the health workers, but also the grocery workers who went out in the middle of a pandemic to make sure we got food and, and essentials. They are heroes. They are essential. Where, where is their hazard pay? I remember at the start of Canberra's lockdown, I went to do a quick shop. Um, it is unbelievable how disgusting the conditions forced upon workers there. They hadn't unlocked all of the trolleys. That would be a store policy decision. They were making uh, workers deliberately interact at close range with people who could be contagious to handle money and uh, master keys to unlock the trolleys. Mm. And God help the the poor trolley pusher who then had to handle all of those trolleys back to base that had been touched by everyone who was in an exposure site. The most safe working conditions are as uh, voluntary as possible and as protected as possible. And you can clearly see there there is no protection for making sure that bosses do the right thing. What you see with a lot of the exposure sites are casual workers who are afraid to miss a shift and be penalized for it because they know that even if they get the isolation payment, which is means-tested to hell, by the way, in Canberra, if you're on any kind of federal income support, you cannot get a test and isolate payment, which is a, a real moral failing. Mm. Even if you get a test and isolate payment in Canberra, it's $270. It probably won't even cover the shifts that you're going to miss. Then, if you're casual, you can be fired at cause. So... They have to know that their boss won't hold it against them that they did the right thing uh, and stayed home. And if they can't make that decision safely, then they're up for thousands of dollars in lost income. So it is absolutely no surprise that workers who do not have good choices in front of them, it's really hard to judge that. It's impossible even and no one should. It's just wonderful to hear from you because I'm hearing someone who is so intelligent and caring and very strategic, and that's the kind of organization the AUW is, you know. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. If, if, that, if that comes through, it's because I have had the privilege of organizing with intelligent and lovely and caring people and learning from them. 
I know you, Anne, for example, were um, a, a former secretary of the AUW. So that, that culture didn't happen by accident. Oop, you just outed me. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's fine. I'm proud of it. Oh, I'm proud of it. She's... Yeah. Um, so, you know, thank you for um, having me and having, having this conversation. It is one of the main ways that we energize each other is by um, finding our shared energy and using it. Like it's, it's all about the solidarity of, of advocating for everyone in our community. We're social creatures. We work better together. Yes. We uh, are not libertarian individualists. <laughs> uh, and uh, good on the work that you do, Daniel. We need voices like yours, and you do, a, do an excellent job. So, so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle. And you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. We were listening to uh, Daniel and he was talking about political will. Now, we've seen political will in action and, and you can see... The double standards and the hypocrisy. Okay. So uh, we had JobKeeper overpayments. We had $27 billion worth of JobKeeper overpayments to businesses that had maintained or increased their sales during the, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they said to, to business, you can have $27 billion bucks. that's fine. So they've got no problems supporting their own ideology uh, when it comes to political will. They can do it just like that. No discussion. There was no big argument about it. No, no, or should we, shouldn't we? Just, there you go. Here's $27 billion. Um, we like you guys. You can have it. That was the job keeper, was it? That was the job keeper overpayments. Overpayments. I think the way it worked was that if you were running a business and you projected that your uh, income in the forward period was going to fall right. by more than uh, 30%, uh, you could apply for the payments. So mm-hmm. they, they do these forward projections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their business didn't fall. They got the money anyway. Uh, if you were if you were on the rock and roll and you got paid twenty seven billion dollars in overpayment, uh, I'm pretty sure <laughs> the coalition would be after you. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You should mention that, Kevin. There was a bit of talk in some of the papers, and it's well worth pointing out. Is this difference of, um, as you say, political will? So, what happened with that overpayment with the job keeper was that it was only in retrospect that the businesses realised they weren't eligible. But the way that legislation was written was there was no ability for the government in retrospect to say, you have to pay it back. And there was no political will to rewrite or amend that legislation so that they could get it back. On the other hand, at the very same time, there were some overpayments that went to individuals. And the situation there was that people would, um, would have a job, They were eligible for JobKeeper during the pandemic lockdown. And then before they got that JobKeeper money, they end up being let go from the job. And so they end up on the unemployment benefit, which is the job seeker. And then they would get a back pay lump sum amount of JobKeeper while they were on the job seeker. Ah. And so people in this funny little situation, and I saw some interviews with people about that, and one woman had even phoned Centrelink and said, well, how do I declare this as income? And they told her, and even though she followed what she thought they said, she still got a debt notice saying that she hadn't declared all her income. And so what you see there is the Centrelink has a very (laughs) well-oiled, finely tuned machine for getting what they think are overpayments and doing their debt collection. 
bit of hair trigger, aren't they? With, if you if thing? you if yeah. you even think that you might be paid over more, and this is the whole thing about cash and accrual payments, you know. So if you get paid uh, a number of weeks afterwards, um, and you report that the work you'd done was during June, but you didn't yeah. get paid to August, they say, right, well, you got money in August, and you were collecting uh, unemployment mm-hmm. benefits. Okay, yeah, but that was the work yeah. I did in June, and that was the whole robo debt thing. Yeah. So, so that's th- a good way of saying it. The Centrelink debt machine is on a hair trigger when it comes to individual unemployed people. So that's how you weaponize the bureaucracy against poor people. And that whole issue with that funny little overpayment on Job Seeker and Keeper, that was about a $32 million with an M problem that affected about 11,000 people compared to this $27 billion. Billion. <laughs> with Which a B. I just go, $27 billion, that's fine. But you guys, as, as soon as soon as you start associating with the, the, with the dirty, unwashed, unemployed, mm. this government regards you as scum and they will go after you hammer and tongs. From the modern monetary theory perspective, where we know that the government can't run out of dollars, so it's not like in either case they need to chase the money to get the dollars in order to spend. So what's what's your perspective on it, given that they don't need to get the money back for revenue? They just mean this is a pool of people who they keep, as Daniel was saying, they, they mm-hmm. keep them, in, they make it as horrible as they can for them, so that people who are working will work for whatever they're given so mm. that they don't end up in this cesspool of of, mm-hmm. of of degradation at living at half the poverty line. Yeah. What's your, what's your opinion though on them chasing the twenty seven billion? Like, do you think they should be after after the businesses for that? Look, um, it, it's a it's a question of consistency. So mm. so if you if you're fueling this inequality mm-hmm. and you're just lavishing people who don't need the money with even more money, it mm. it sets up. Um, bad will. Uh, from a purely economic point of view, it's it's not really that bad. It, it like so it's a big big oops. <laughs> yeah, I mean they are actually injecting uh, money into the economy. Right. It's just not very well targeted. It's the targeting. So it's not how much you spend or whether they can find the money. It's how you target the money that's always the important thing. Yeah, I mean these yeah. are all people who are doing it hard because of a pandemic, which is having economic uh, consequences. Mm. And yet, even under those circumstances, they can't help themselves. But to whip the poor, to, to, to give them a hard time. They just love punishing the poor. Yeah. It's, it's, it's part of their ideology. Yeah. And talking about political will and the way that the, and this is bloody Murdoch Press again. Oh, you love the Murdoch Press. He's now a born again <laughs> greenie. He's now seen the light. He's, 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 he's gone. We, we need to reach net zero by 2050. Mm. And, and, and on the one hand, I'm really pleased that finally it's sunk into his thick skull that we need to do something about saving the planet. Um, do you think that's the motivation? No, I don't trust his, his, uh, <laughs> his integrity at all. He's, he's, um, he's doing it because it's mainly through the newspapers, the, um, uh, the broadsheet newspapers he has uh, down the East Coast and around Australia. All of his advertisers have gone green. Uh, and if he wants to keep his advertisers, he's going to have to start making the right noises. So he is. Uh, I was watching um, uh, watching that on Media Watch. The net zero by 2050 is still problematic, but at least it's a start. Yeah, look, it's 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 nice to see that he was finally pushed into having to do something about it. Uh, I just really resent the fact that we leave important decisions to someone like Rupert Murdoch. That guy has no ethics. He's not the right person to be making the big calls on, on how we run society. He's mm-hmm. a megalomaniac. Maniacal. Well, he's a, he's a master at this thing called state capture, which yeah. is one of my favourite phrases from talking with Daniel. And you know how when you hear a phrase and then you start hearing it everywhere? Yeah. And I saw somebody else talking about state capture and their description of it was to say that It's when uh, corruption becomes institutionalised. So, in fact, 
the people who, for example, want to see a gas-led recovery, they are not doing something necessarily illegal because they've actually captured the lawmaking process to make what they want legal, which may not be, of course, in the public interest. It's usually in the interests of an oligarchy. So state capture is sort of what you get on your way to this thing called an oligarchy, which means rule by the wealthy elite. Yeah, well, we're uh, well on the way, I'd say, uh, Anne. I'd say we're... Um, Pretty much there, I think. Yeah, yeah. We're running out of time for the show, and we need to start... Briefly, briefly, I just want to mention, given the date, we have been talking about uh, how the Australian Federal Government keeps the unemployed in poverty, so they're doing their bit to celebrate Anti-Poverty Week, (laughs) and it is Anti-Poverty Week this week. It's something that the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union has often used to highlight the issue of poverty for the unemployed, as well as many others. Just got a couple of blips from uh, what's going on out there. Jez Haywood, who we have had on the show before, who is with the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, he tweeted about Anti-Poverty Week and said, let me share a piece of advice that a Centrelink employee once told me about the JSPs, the job service providers, which are the privatised job agencies. And he quotes this Centrelink employee saying, they're useless. They don't actually find people work. Just go along and tick all the boxes so you don't get into trouble. So there's some good advice coming out of Anti-Poverty Week. Uh, How is it that we are talking about poverty in a country like Australia at the moment when we know that they can do things like reverse their ideology on uh, on deficits and create $300 billion to pull us through Mm -hmm. a crisis? Mm -hmm. They can reverse their uh, opinions on uh, climate change. Uh, They're the exact same policies that Labor took to the last election and the Mm. coalition ridiculed them for. They're now saying, oh, no, that's now a good idea. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, they're quite happy for one in five kids in this lucky country to grow up in families that are below the poverty line. We just need them to reverse their, because they're so good at backflipping, just reverse Mm -hmm. their, their ideology on poverty and just start forking out the money, like bring people out of poverty. They did it quite easily during during a crisis. But when you're in poverty, it's always a crisis. So just do it all the time. Yeah. Problem Simple. solved. <laughs> but uh, we've got to go because Mafalda's up next and uh, we're going to make room. Thanks so, for joining us. It was a good show. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, two weeks' time, we'll catch you again. See you then. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewers Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself, so if you got all the pleasure... What, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure. That's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got a multiplier. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.